Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts, the 25th chapter. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Hear now God's Word. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. And when he had remained among them for more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself. Neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. From time to time, I like to remind you, when it comes to my sermon preparation, I am a primitive hunter-gatherer. I almost always rely on the works of men with far greater knowledge than is native to me. I am like a cook who collects recipes of great chefs, and I combine what they have with a little bit of my own seasoning. So I have mentioned a few times during this series on the book of Acts that I am indebted to you, Uh, uh, I'm indebted to them, which means that you too are indebted to them, Uh, to the commentaries and sermons of particularly John Stott, Derek Thomas, N.T. Wright, and R.C. Sproul, and several others. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, and he reveals a very critical truth. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Puritan John Owen, who was Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, once told King Charles II that he would gladly trade all of his learning for John Bunyan's power to preach. And yet... In God's providence, Bunyan spent 12 years in prison. Why would God put his best preacher in prison? With our nearly 350 years of perspective, we know that without that imprisonment, there never would have been the book, Pilgrim's Progress, which has turned out to be one of the most important books in Christian literature. 
Somebody did a survey in early America, I don't remember the year, but the three books they found most common in all libraries, meaning private libraries as well as public, were the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress, and Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Pilgrim's Progress has been translated into more than 200 languages and has never been out of print. According to literary editor Robert McCrum, quote, there's no book in English apart from the Bible to equal Bunyan's masterpiece for the range of its readership or its influence on writers. Paul's imprisonment might raise similar questions. Why did God place the most powerful and influential apostle in prison? On the face of it, it doesn't make sense. But we know that God's ways are not our ways. In William Cowper's hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, he captures the thought this way, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. That's really the message of today's short sermon. We're going to have a longer sermon next week because we're going to uh, come before Agrippa, and it's a longer passage. But today we have this brief text uh, before Festus. Paul himself will later testify that uh, while he is incarcerated in Rome that God had worked in such a way as to secure advantages for the gospel that otherwise would not have been possible. So in Philippians 1, 12-14, Paul says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, and he's talking about the things we're reading about right now in this text in Acts, the things that have happened to me actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel." So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to the, all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What seems to be inefficient to us turns out to be part of God's strategy. How many times are we tempted to second-guess God's plan in our life? And yet Paul insisted that he was right where God wanted him to be. What he understood and what we need to understand is that we are called to glorify God in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. In the last chapter, we learn that Governor Felix, quote, sent for Paul more often and conversed with him. So during this two year, two years of this, this imprisonment, uh, from time to time, Felix would send for Paul just to talk with him. Remember, he had talked with Felix and, and Drusilla, uh, his sister and wife, um, and uh, had confronted them initially. He sent him away because he was too busy, but then he calls him back. He's intrigued by Paul. So I suspect that Paul was not only bold in what he said, but I, somehow he was winsome. He was a curious guy. He, he wanted to hear more. 
On the other hand, Felix's agenda was different than God's agenda. His main concern, other than the possibility of soliciting a bribe, remember Paul had been collecting offerings all over to bring to Jerusalem, so no doubt Felix had some idea that Paul had money or had had access to money. So he was hoping for a bribe, the text tells us, Luke tells us. But, uh, again, he, uh, he also, uh, at the top of his priority list, was to be sure that he maintained civil order in Rome and to keep his Roman masters happy. He had been sent down there. His primary job was to keep the peace. Because remember, there's a lot of political turmoil going on. It's going to blow up here in less than ten years into a full-fledged war. So that was his main objective, keep, keep, keep the folks at home office happy. So this innocent man remained in prison to prevent Jewish unrest, but eventually Felix is called, called to Rome, and he is relieved of his position. We don't know exactly why. History doesn't give us any record of what happened to Felix after this, but we, don't know, but we do know that God has him exit the stage and that his influence is over. On the other hand, his prisoner, uh, his prisoner's words, Paul's words, continue to influence the whole world 2,000 years later. As I heard someone put it once, we name our dogs Nero and our sons Paul. Luke records the words of Mary's Magnificent, which express a similar statement. You remember from Luke 1. He, the Lord, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. And he has exalted the lowly. That's what he's doing. Paul in prison. He's the lowly. And God's exalting him while he's taking somebody like Felix and putting him over to the side, to the ash heap of history. Derek Thomas comments on Festus. Not much is known of Festus before his arrival in Caesarea, probably by ship in late A.D. 59 or early A.D. 60. His rule would last barely two years. He died in A.D. 62 and would be filled, uh, and would be filled with the difficulties resulting from his predecessor's maladministration. The direction of this region was inexorably headed toward the disastrous war, A.D. 66 through 70, when the Roman 10th Legion, under the military leadership of General Titus, arrived to deal with the Jewish problem by destroying both Jerusalem and its temple. So he's got a very short time on the stage here, on God's stage. But Festus, it's interesting, as he gets to town, he doesn't waste any time... And three days after he arrives in Caesarea, he heads down to Jerusalem. What becomes obvious is the fact that even after Paul has been languishing in prison for two years, Paul's outstanding case is the central issue for the Jewish leadership. That's the first thing, really the main thing. You can imagine going out, what what do we need to do? How are things going? What's on your plate? What's on your agenda? Paul. When are you going to try Paul? We want you to send Paul to us is what we want you to do. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him, uh, that is Festus, against Paul. 
And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem. We want him to be tried here, in this jurisdiction. And then Luke gives the comment, while they lay wait, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. They still, remember the, the 40 men who had the plot to kill him? That's still in, that's, that plot's still sitting there waiting to be enacted. So these men had not given up on their plot to assassinate Paul. And now I'm going to speculate a bit here. The Romans didn't really like the Jews, and the Jews didn't like the Romans. And I suspect Festus had already been thoroughly briefed by Felix. Remember, Felix had been visiting with Paul off and on during those two years. And I actually, again, I'm speculating. I, I somehow think Felix came to like Paul. And Felix knew exactly what the Jews were up to. And so he's going to tell Festus, here, I know you're about to head down to Jerusalem. I'm leaving. I'm going back to Rome. I'm in trouble. But here's my advice to you. When you go down to Jerusalem, don't let them talk you into sending Paul down there. Speculation. But here's what we do know. They were all acting at a political level, which means they were all seeking their own interest. Um, Acts 25, 4 and 5. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea after they asked that he be tried in Jerusalem and that he himself was going there shortly. So I'm, I'm headed back to Caesarea. We'll have a trial there. Therefore, he said, let those of you who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. Let's see if he's guilty. Come prove your case. Again, I want to emphasize that all the conspiracies of men are fully, thoroughly, in exhaustive detail known by God right now, then and now. Doesn't that comfort you? It should, because the Bible says that when God sees those, what's his response? Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and he holds them in derision. It's a mocking laugh. Perhaps Paul was praying Psalm 141. Listen, keep me from the snares they have laid for me and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I escape safely. So while Paul was innocent, that was not the chief concern of Festus. He had been sent to the region to do a better job of maintaining peace and stability than his predecessor had been able to do. And in the world, everything is political. It's about getting what we want. He needed the support and cooperation of the Jewish elite in Jerusalem. And so he was walking this political tightrope, and Paul's future appears to have been caught in the middle. But Paul knew that God was still sovereign in the affairs of men. I mean, if you just were looking at everything on the surface, this doesn't look good for Paul. Looks like a lot of trouble. Festus wants to please the Jews. He wants to do them a favor. He wants to keep the peace. So when you look at the political situation, the cards seem to be stacked against Paul. But nothing... Nothing happens outside of God's plan. That was true for Paul. That is true for us as well. 
God never abdicates His rule over every detail of our lives. There are no contingencies for Him. When the Jewish delegates from Jerusalem arrive, they rehash the same charges from two years previously. Verse 7, And when they had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, and once again, which they could not prove. The charges included attacking Jewish law, defiling the temple, and dishonoring Caesar by encouraging civil unrest. And so Festus was between a rock and a hard place. Since the last thing he needed was for Nero, who was the Caesar, to learn that a riot had broken out uh, in less than a week after he arrived. So he absolutely needed to make sure that didn't happen. And so what Festus wants is he wants to hand off this hot potato, Paul. So Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Are you willing to have a trial in Jerusalem? So Festus was proposing a change of jurisdiction, handing Paul over to the Sanhedrin, which in effect would be handing Paul over to certain death. However, he was also constrained by Roman law. And Paul had already appealed to his birthright as a Roman citizen, a fact that was recorded into the records, if you remember, by the commander, uh, Lysias, in a letter that he had written. So there's already a document, a government document, saying that Paul has asserted his citizenship. So that's in the system. And again, here we are. God's good providence had, had been at work in this story before Paul was born, because either his father or his grandfather had secured Roman citizenship. So God is at work in this story before this story shows up, this part of the story. So the Roman citizen's right of appeal to be tried before Caesar himself had been in effect for almost a century. This is well-established precedent. The notorious Nero was Caesar. And we think our political leadership is corrupt. It can get worse. He had come to power during Paul's stay at Ephesus, A.D. 54. Festus had no choice but to grant Paul's appeal to Caesar. No doubt he was happy enough to get rid of Paul. Now he could say to the Jews, look, I tried. I tried. I wanted to move it to Jerusalem, but I can't. My hands are tied. Uh, I've got to do what the emperor says to do. Nero had announced at the beginning of his reign that unlike his predecessor, Claudius, he would not hear cases, these legal cases, in person, and he delegated them to a personal representative, Perfectus Praetorio. Uh, that was, that, he had a, basically his own um, attorney general who would take care of such cases. So Paul replies to Festus, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know, for if I am an offender or have committed committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. 
So Paul is not opposed to facing justice. He's not trying to just get off. If he deserves to die, he's willing to die. If you've committed the crime, confess it. However, Paul was innocent. He refused to be handed over to a lynch mob. And it appears that Festus retired to his chambers then to consult with his counsel as to what they should do. And he comes back with a verdict and they grant Paul's appeal to Caesar. Now I want to detour for a moment to make a point about our obligations and interactions with civil authorities. It's easy to be critical of any government, any government. Why? Because they are made up of incompetent people like you and me, um, sinful people like you and me. And that's true also of church government, family government, and civil government. It's easy to be a critic. Civil government is different only in that it is often made up of unbelievers, and it's also big, which, which compounds its incompetency frequently. Nevertheless, we have certain biblical obligations to all these governments. The Westminster Confession statement on the civil magistrate is reflective of Paul's words from Romans 13, God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and the public good, and to this end has armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. By the way, when Paul writes Romans 13, Nero is the Caesar. That's who he's alluding to. The civil, continuing back with Westminster, the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So civil government exists for the welfare of society and is given the power of the sword, that is the lawful use of force to enforce just laws. Again, Romans 13, 4 and 5. For he, that is the civil magistrate, the king, or the Caesar in this case, is a minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister or servant, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. This is what God requires of us. And again, it's not like we say, oh, yeah, but he had a really good king. Paul was talking about a really godly man who was in office. This was Nero. This is a guy who's going to be burning Christians shortly. Derek Thomas comments again, As far as Paul was concerned, those found guilty of transgressing the civil law were subject to its penalties, and rightly so. So long as compliance with these laws did not itself violate God's revealed law, laws that forbid what God requires or require what God forbids may necessitate some form of civil disobedience with acceptance of any civil consequences that may result. Peter and John had acted in precisely this way when they refused to stop preaching in the name of Jesus and were imprisoned as a result. 
We recall that Paul had expressed his desire to go to Rome in chapter 21. I suspect he recognized Rome as, I mean, it's kind of like our New York City. It was the happening place. It was the hub of the world. It was all roads lead to Rome. And that was the place where the gospel needed to be. He saw great opportunity for the spread of the gospel. Christ had also appeared to him, remember, in Jerusalem, reassuring him that he would indeed go to Rome in chapter 23. And when I'm given the choice, in my case, to go from point A to point B, if I have the choice, I always take the shortest route, the flattest route, the safest route, the easiest route to get from point A to point B. But what I've also found in my life is God almost never lets me do that. He has a, he takes me the long way, the hard way, the steep way, the dangerous way, because he has things to teach me along the way. God's ways are not our ways. A man, a man's heart plans his ways, Proverbs 6, 16, 9, but the Lord directs his steps. Yeah, Paul, you're going to get to Rome, but I'm going to take you my way. It is instructive that Paul informs us in his letter to the church at Philippi, which he wrote from Rome, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Different trials teach us different things. But one thing they often teach us or should teach us is humility. Paul has a great deal of incarceration ahead of him in Rome. He's already spent two years in prison in Caesarea. And perhaps this is why he wrote to the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or questioning. And again, he writes this from Rome. We're going to see other examples of that. In in fact, most of the epistles are written from Rome. Now, it's a short sermon today, short text. Next week, we're going to deal with the rest of this chapter, Acts 25, starting in verse 13, and go all the way through verse 32 of 26. And this will be Paul's appearance before King Agrippa and one of his major defense, where you may recall Agrippa says that he is almost persuaded to be a Christian. So that's an exciting and important passage that we will come to next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these lessons that are taught to us through the history of the church, through this story that is unfolding about the Apostle Paul and how we see your hand at work overriding the the intents of evil men and plots and conspiracies and all kinds of things, and yet you take even that and you laugh and you bring about the the result that you want and leave them frustrated, defeated, empty. Rome is gone. The kingdom of God is here. Father, we thank you for the promise of your watch care over us. Help us to not just view this as a story about the apostle, but help us to see ourselves that indeed we are part of your story that you are directing our lives and that we are protected by you. Help us to rely on that and to rejoice in that 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we saw in the text today, the incredible blessing of God's providence in the life of the Apostle, whether he's in prison or not in prison, reminds us of Joseph, right? When he was in prison, it says, and the Lord was with him. He was using that occasion to bring Joseph to the place where he wanted him. In due time, God exalted him. And that's how God works in our lives. I want to read today from the Belgic Confession of Faith. That's part of our book of confessions. Article 13, the doctrine of God's providence. God's care for his creation, for us, for the world. We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. Yet God is not the author of, nor can be charged with, the sin that occurs. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devils and wicked men Act unjustly. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples, so as to learn only what he shows us in his word without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under His control so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. Amen. Amen. Oh Lord, we are grateful today to be able to lift up our hearts, hands, and voices, adults, children, men, women, From all kinds of backgrounds and circumstances, you have called us to yourself to be one in Christ. And so we are grateful for that, grateful that we can lift up our voices, bow our heads, kneel, and eat together for the glory of your name, for the good of us and the good of the world. Send us forth now with your blessing, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen.